0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about embracing your next mindset. Our guest is Gary Bowles. He's an adjunct chair for the future of work for Singularity University. And we're going to be talking about his book, The Next Rules of Work. He is part of the WBEX interview series brought to you by WBEX, the World Business and Executive Coaching Summit, part of coaching.com. WBEx is the world's largest learning platform for business and executive coaches. Gary, let's start with what did you call this period, the Great Reset?
1: As we were slowly realizing there was something going on with this global pandemic thing, My group, we looked back in uh, March of 2020 at previous resets, like the Great Recession. And what we realized is that they always had three phases. There's a falling off the cliff phase of almost complete uncertainty. You remember back in March and April of 2020, we had no idea what was going on. You couldn't possibly predict or have any way of dealing with the uncertainty. You just had to live day by day. Then there's a middle phase of sort of riffling along the bottom, but it's a range of different experiences. The Nordics have a great phrase called same storm, different boats. And some countries almost completely shrugged off the impact of the Great Reset of the global pandemic, and others were still dealing deeply with the challenges of the infection rates, of the impacts from their lockdowns on their industries, their organizations, and their lives. And then there was a predictable third phase, as we like to say in the U.S., not just building back, but building back better, where hopefully we don't just bungee cord back to the way that we did things before. We actually will embrace the learnings that we've gained from this unique period in human history, and we will together co-create what I call the next rules of work.
0: Perfect lead into what are the next rules of work?
1: First off, I think it's really important for our listeners to just sort of get a mental picture. Think of work as always being sort of the overlap of three phases. There are old rules which we've inherited, nine to five jobs, horrible commutes, five days a week working, six days a week, whatever those, those structures are that we've inherited from the industrial era. I'm fond of saying, you know, the the whole approach to five days a week, that actually is a hundred-year-old practice that started in a factory in the northeastern United States that had Christian and Jewish workers and ended up giving them both days off. That is how the five-day work week infected the world. And so we have so many of the ways that we work that we inherited from the industrial era, including static workplaces and cubicle farms and that sort of thing. And then there's always new rules, like we knew Silicon Valley companies were experimenting with this remote and distributed work thing, but companies like Yahoo and IBM that used to have them shot them. Mm-hmm. And so there were always experimentation with these new rules, but then along comes a virus and suddenly we all together had to figure out the next rules. We have to learn Zoom. We have to do this, I don't like the word remote work, I like distributed much better. Because it doesn't other the person we can't see, but the whole idea of co-creating those rules, we all had to do that in real time. And so, I typically say there's sort of six facets of that diamond that are really the sort of the foundation of the next rules of work. And they're just so happens they're the six Ws: Uh, the the what, the where, the when, the who, the how, and the why of work. And it's it's wonderful that you know a two thousand year old philosopher named Aristotle used to use the six W's as a way of deconstructing really complex problems. And it just so happens every one of those different facets of work changed, not just the where, which is what we can tend to over-index on, but all of the others changed. And so we have the capacity to actually determine the six W's of our work, each of us individually and in the context of our teams and our organizations. And I focus especially in conversations like this on the how which I talk about the shift in how we manage and how we lead, that we need to change that entire calculus to a completely new mindset.
0: Can you say more about
1: the how then? Absolutely. So first off, this is really hard stuff. Managing and leading is really hard stuff. And so what it can tend to lead to is what I call the leadership industrial complex. There's a stack of books that could probably go to the moon on leadership, because it's really, really difficult. And what I feel happens sometimes is we can start to lose the meaning of what it is to manage or to lead. And so, first off, a lot of the framing in my book is mindset, skill set, and tool set. So, we always start with mindset the mindset of someone who guides a team or guides an organization. I call that the team guide, it's not manager, it's not leader. My friend Esther Wojcicki has a marvelous book called Moonshots in Education, and she says the teacher needs to go from this traditional role, again, industrial era, of the sage on the stage, the one with all the answers, to the guide on the side, the one with all the best questions. And so I believe that as someone who leads in an organization, you can actually sort of change the calculus. You know, it's not some binary state. You're a leader or you're not. Leading's a verb. Anyone can do it. So, the sniff test I often suggest to people who lead in organizations, and that's the phrase I often use, is don't evaluate your own effectiveness by how many times you lead. Assess yourself by how many times others lead that you have helped to spark or catalyze to lead, and count the number of times that problems are solved that you never see. So, if you're somebody with a lot of responsibility in the organization, this can be a very, very difficult adaptation because you wanna jump in and solve problems. It's what you learned. It's how you moved up in the corporate hierarchy. But instead, this is a new model for how you can think of problems being effectively solved throughout the organization in that third phase of the great reset.
0: We talk about moving from traditional leadership and I use the image of Gibbs on NCIS. That's how we grew up, right? That's what good looked like. And in the industrial era, that made sense. Now I use, just because he's one of my favorite historical figures, is Einstein. That I don't want all the problems. I realized that my identity was built on solving them. But if my identity stays on solving them, then I never get to move the company to the next level because I'm so pulled into marketing isn't talking to finance or, you know, all the stuff. And to make that change, our work really looks at not only how do we help people change their mindsets, but the structures and cultures.
1: That's brilliant. And you use the key word, Maureen, which is identity, which is that we tend to become anchored we tend to build a narrative, we have a story about who we are and what we do. One of the first places you have to start when I talk about mindset shift or cultural shift is around identity. If you keep on thinking of yourself as the player coach, the one that has to jump in and solve every problem, then there's no way that you're gonna actually be continually effective as things become more and more complicated and you no longer actually have the skill set to be able to solve that problem.
0: And the organization suffers.
1: Absolutely. And unfortunately, it suffers in ways that are not always visible, because on the face of it, you're command and control, you're making all the decisions, it looks like things are happening. But you don't see that what you're doing is you're disaffecting other workers, you are not giving them the opportunity to learn new skills. You're not bringing in diverse thinkers into the organization, because you keep on hiring people that look like you. You're not encouraging everybody to become Bands of problem solvers. You're sending them the message. No, the way to be effective in this organization is to be the one who steps in and solves every problem. You know, I often say to people, if you really want to know the culture that you have, you can stop anybody in the corridor and ask them just one simple question What are the three things you have to do in our organization to be successful? And if it's listen to what the boss says, don't stick your head up above the trenches and just do your job, you know what kind of culture that you have. And so this is a, it's a mindset shift. It's that you would be open to the input, mm-hmm. that maybe people should be
0: actually competent in making their own decisions. And that's where we talk about the shift from traditional to scientist, that the scientist owns that they don't know the answer, but they're darn good at getting an answer. It's not like they're clueless. They're creating in spaces that didn't exist. And the idea of co-creating, you've used that word several times, that they collaborate with others in the organization or outside of the organization. In many cases, it doesn't matter where the knowledge resides. It's about working with the smartest people we get access to, to solve the problems that are relevant for us moving forward.
1: Again, brilliant. because in the context of the scientist, what you're trying to do essentially is to expand human knowledge. Like that's what you've all signed up for. In the context of the organization, what you've signed up for is creating value for the organization's stakeholders. And that's why alignment in all of this is so critical because and it's something that a coach can be extremely helpful in helping executives and others who lead to be as effective as possible in their work is alignment is critical. Scientists all agree Yeah, we want to expand human knowledge and we'll deal with the bumped egos that happen when we each are trying to jockey for a position based on our expertise. Within the context of an organization, continually coming back to the anchor of who are our stakeholders? What value are we creating for them? How does what I do align with that strategic process of creating that value? That's the anchor that people in the organizational context need to keep coming back to
0: so often, and this gets back to traditional versus new leadership and different mindsets, it's not about my department. It's about how my department contributes to all of my stakeholders.
1: Absolutely. And what unfortunately happens in a lot of organizations that I'm sure you've seen is that's not explicit. Like I show in my book, I show what I call the strategic arrow. And it starts with vision and mission, then strategy, and then it's results (laughs) and uh, objectives and so okrs and all those structures sort of fit here in the middle but it all has to be tied to the strategy of the organization so another great question to ask people in a hallway or random zoom calls is what are the top three strategic goals of our organization what are the top three strategic goals of the team what are your top three strategic goals and how do all those align which of the, the organization's strategic goals are you and the team contributing to. And if you ask five people those questions, chances are good they either won't know the answer or you're going to get five different answers. And so that the organizations, and I use examples like Asana and others, that have built that kind of alignment, have baked it into their DNA Anybody can answer those questions because they are continually recalibrating around the strategy of the organization.
0: Rather than the, oh, let me go check the website. I think it's posted there.
1: Yeah. Or or as I often say, the values that are written on the micro kitchen wall. Yeah. (laughs) What the leadership group, thats a black box of decision-making in most organizations, has gone off onto a retreat. And had some consultant write down on a whiteboard, and then they tried to spread that throughout the company, as opposed to an authentic process of continually co-creating what that vision and mission for the organization are.
0: How do you co-create that in a large-scale organization? Because it's we don't have a company meeting of 100,000 people to come up with this.
1: This is one of the greatest challenges is scale, right? And we talk a lot about this at Singularity University. We often say, how can you come up with an idea that could impact the lives of a billion people? And then the asterisk is, that's a lot of people. (laughs) We do a lot of work with companies like Novartis, 100,000 people. And so we often think of these as, first off, everybody's got to sign up. It's a journey. Secondly, it has to be essentially focused on not answers, but process. What I tell a lot of people who lead in organizations, this is true of government organizations, When I sit down with ministers of labor and education from countries from Brazil to Tunisia, and I say, look, your deliverable is not the answer. Your deliverable is a process that will last beyond your tenure. And so if what you've done is you have brought people together in an authentic co-creation process, and some people, what they find is the first step is a manifesto. Is you co-create a statement of who the organization is and where it needs to go. I use the example in the book of Avito, basically the eBay of Russia, and Vladimir, the CEO, has an amazing team that reports to him with incredibly diverse backgrounds, and they're the top in their field. But they created a manifesto to keep on pushing farther and to keep on getting people all the mindset together. Um, you know, Institute for Corporate Performance. Stephen Oaks has done a great job. He's written a book about, they did an analysis of these sort of cultural transformation processes and how you help people who lead in organizations to go through this process. And he said, 85% fail. Let's all accept. It's a really high failure rate. Um, so, but he breaks down, there's about a dozen steps. I list them in the book of the 15% that are successful. And it turns out it, they're pretty understandable ideas. Like, have a manifesto, basically have the people who are seen as those who lead in the organization. They have to have authentic behavior. You can't just be the ones that say my way or the highway or do as I say. If you're going to be a learning organization, like you've decided that's our mindset that we want the most, the CEO has to talk about the latest courses that she just took. Mm -hmm. It has to be continually encouraging direct reports to be collaborating on the things that they're trying to learn together and so on. So big ships are really, really hard to write in this. Some people believe you can change at the core and others believe, nah, that just doesn't work. You've got to go to the edge. Like my good friend, John Hagel, formerly of Deloitte Center for the Edge, believes you've got to start innovative things in a division or a new company. And then that could potentially infect the rest of the organization. Whatever your strategy is, it's doable. You just have to get really deep commitment, what I call the coalition of the willing inside the organization of people that all see the vision and opportunity and are willing to dive in.
0: I love that it can happen in both. One of the things I see is it often happens with C-suite change, out with the old, in with the new. There's a message there that when enough of the senior folks leave, that we're open to change. And if you're not open to change, you might choose to exit and you're still going to change.
1: Absolutely. I always say if you determine, you do the self inventory to determine that is the challenge, that's the first thing to solve. You know, one of the reasons I've got nine courses on LinkedIn Learning and it's learning mindset, learning agility. These are trainable, <laughs> like it's totally trainable. It's just that, especially as people gain more responsibility in organizations, they can sometimes get the memo. <laughs> or create the structure around themselves where they are immune to change. They don't feel that they're the ones that need to. I once was the COO of a company, a startup that scaled very quickly. And the CEO, at, during one especially challenging meeting, said, let's come up with a solution that doesn't mean I have to change.
0: At least he was candid.
1: At least he was candid about because it.
0: Because that is so often the belief yeah. that you people go change. Yeah, Our transformation methodology maps concurrently my change journey and our change journey, because often the you people go change approach is suboptimal.
1: Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, that CEO, because of that, I had a great consultant working with me. There's a wonderful book called Five Temptations of a CEO by Pat Lencioni. Pat was a consultant to me for that company with that CEO and ended up writing the book because of you know, all the things he'd learned about some of the challenges of doing that.
0: It's easy to make light of this If my meaning-making algorithm is one thing, just like my software is programmed in, changing a bit of it unravels a lot of the code.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. First off, I always think of mindset, everybody's got a different definition. My definition is how we prepare ourselves as we're about to interact with problems and people. And so my mindset at the front end is, you're about to have a hard conversation with somebody. You're, you know, basically you have a whole bunch of things that are going on inside your brain, inside your mind, and they're processes you're often not aware of. And so you're, you're basically seeing the result of a whole bunch of processes of how your, your brain is actually working. And you're probably blind to a lot of those processes. We have all these cognitive biases. And so first I say, well, let's all admit we all have these things. Basically, my friend Dan Ariely, who writes marvelous books on why we do things against our own best interests, you know, he says we normally make decisions and then we make up reasons afterwards as to why we did them. So I suggest to go through a couple of different steps. The first is read the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, because at least know what we're talking about and understand that there's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, and why we have a fixed mindset. There's nothing wrong with a fixed mindset. It's just it doesn't prepare us for exponential change. So if you were absolutely invested in a horrible commute and working in a cubicle farm, and along comes a virus, you are less prepared to be able to adapt. So the first is read the book Mindset. Second is, there's a marvelous book called Immunity to Change by uh, Robert Keegan and Lisa Lasco lee And So it's really important to understand, Okay, why do we have these antibodies in our brains that are telling us we don't need to change? Like, I'm good. I don't have to fix me. But if you embrace the growth mindset model, then that's why the CEO talks about the latest course that the CEO has taken, because you're sending all these social signals. There's no done. (laughs) My father, you know, he's the author of this book, What Colors Your Parachute? The World's Enduring Career Manual. He was updating Parachute. A month before he passed away at the age of 90. And to him, it was he updated the book every year. And is always a chance to learn, to bake into the next version of the book what was working for people and to throw out the stuff that wasn't working. We're always works in process. So if you if you read Mindset, then you read Immunity to Change, and now you want to infect the organization with that, I suggest reading Cultural Renovation, you know, the I4CP book, because then you understand I, Here are the steps we go through to be able to actually make this cultural shift happen.
0: So I want to go back to immunity to change just because I think it's such a powerful construct and the idea that so much of how we behave in the world is pre-programmed and that while we think we're making a choice, the choice is actually based on how our brain is wired and our brain is wired based on all of the things that have happened in our lives up to this point. I don't know the statistics. I've read and heard 90 plus percent of what we do is actually based on habit, the algorithms that are wired into our brain to keep us alive and keep us safe. So most of us think we're making a choice. We're programmed to make that choice, whether it's a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. And adjusting it requires a very deliberate process of rewiring.
1: Oh, you're exactly right. So the way that a lot of my behavioral psychologist friends talk about this is that first off, there's clearly a physical layer like our brains. We've got all these different chemicals squirting around in our brains. They reward us for stuff or they penalize us for stuff. So you eat a piece of chocolate or I eat a piece of chocolate. Bingo, all these endorphins are kicking off. Good thing. Eat more chocolate. But then you've got the way that your mind is working and there's a lot of cognitive mechanisms. And I break down decision-making, for instance. My friend, Chaim Guggenheim, Who's a disciple of uh, the first time sort of approach to understanding how our minds work? He has a great model of how we make decisions. And it turns out, after a while, we sort of built this process about how we gather information, how we make decisions, and then how we justify those decisions. I'm fond of saying we have so much stuff that we've coded from very early on in our lives. If that was transparent to us, it would be as if we, the example I use, what if when you were born, a nurse brings you to your parents and says, here's this beautiful baby. And oh, by the way, Here's the user manual. Here's all the kinds of people this baby is gonna love to be around. Here's all the kinds of problems this baby is gonna love to solve. Here's the place in the world that this baby is gonna love to live geographically. You have a user manual for these digital distraction devices, which we call cell phones. Why isn't there a user manual of you? Well, there isn't. So be- you become a trial and error machine. We don't call it trial and success; we call it trial and error. You know, you touch the stove; it's hot. You don't touch it again. Well, okay, I touched it a couple times. I was a pretty dumb kid, but but eventually you figure it out. Experimental.
0: You were experimental. Experimental.
1: experimental. I was experimental. Will it happen again? Oh yes, it's still hot. Amazing. <laughs> it's a stove. So the result is we build up these cognitive biases because we solve problems in certain ways, and after a while, that's how we create value in the world. And so. That's one of the reasons I call it the next rules of work. Think of when the first job you had, I don't know about you, but I didn't know the rules. You sort of had to figure them out, trial and error machines, right? Oh, you're supposed to show up on time. If you don't show up on time, you get your pay doc. And and so there's all of these rules that we figured out. And then after a while, it's like baking. It's like different layers that can sort of get baked into us. And so when you talk about immunity to change, there's nothing wrong with actually having learned all of those ways to solve problems you've created value in the world you've been able to have a job i often say you know the old rules of work make money and be good at what you do so you make more money and that's kind of it <laughs> there's higher levels of consciousness higher levels of actually being effective in your work and with other people and and you realize after a while oh you know what sometimes being so locked into those old ways of doing things that actually is what's keeping me from being able to lead effectively in this new era. And if there's nothing but the COVID era, to make that clear with distributed work, you know this has been the challenge over and over again for so many who lead.
0: What I hear then is, as a leader, I actually need to deprogram yeah. some of what I have done and replace it with. So I need to learn the next rules. I need to stop doing some things. I need to start doing some new things some of that's habit and it's going to be uncomfortable to get there. I don't just get to go to a class and come up changed. I have to do some fairly deep personal work and that's complicated.
1: You're exactly right. Very few of us wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to be a different person and do it. It doesn't work like that for most people. Instead, What we found is it's really, really helpful, first off, to go through some level of of self-inventory or self-introspection. Understand your own best-loved skills. Understand the kinds of people that you like to work around. Understand all those things that drive you. Because it turns out, we talked about cognitive biases. We have all these attractors to things. We are attracted to people that think like us and talk like us. We're attracted to the kinds of problems that we like to solve. And uh, if we don't question those things, and we also don't question the methodology, the techniques we use to solve problems, we will continue to use the same tools over and over again in very inappropriate contexts and in ways. We often talk about ways that you can infect organizations with this. Do design thinking workshops during lunch times. Uh, if you buy lunch for people and get a dozen people spanning across the organization to come in and focus on a challenge that might be organizationally or it might be the next problem for your future customer, you send them all the signals. Like we want you to be part of learning how we co create solutions to problems together start to get the message oh you know what i don't have to be be the one with all the answers
0: and then it takes a while for me to really let that sink in
1: absolutely you got to practice it it's like any skill it has to be practiced and you also have to have the reward mechanisms baked in so if you have a coach what the coach needs to do is to help you to see that you are actually growing and changing because otherwise we don't have any fitbit for change like there's nothing that's telling us look look you grew 13 percent last week you're amazing Mm -hmm that's one of the valuable roles of the coach is to help you to say, wait a minute, you know what, you just solved that problem in a way you said you couldn't do six months ago. This is awesome. You need to recognize how much you have grown and changed. Second thing is we like, we need to practice and we just see it. And then we need the incentives. You need to actually, you know, we say to organizations, you really want to teach this, what I call the team guide approach. You bake it into compensation. It's how many times the team actually solved the problem and you didn't actually have to solve it yourself. And the team says, yes, we solved that problem without that person being involved. Make your bonus on those types of metrics rather than just leaving it to chance or the hope for self-development.
0: Back to then realigning system and culture. So I'm doing rewards by causing my brain chemicals to change yeah. and do the happy chemicals rather than the urine idiot chemicals. Yeah. And then the culture also rewards me economically with promotions with opportunities.
1: Absolutely. And then there's another element I'd say is just know how your brain works. There's a great methodology, BJ Fogg at Stanford's uh, Persuasive Technology Lab. He's got a great model about, he calls it tiny habits. So if you just Google tiny habits, that'll get you BJ stuff. And he's got a great curve that he shows, which is, think of the way that we actually take action, like we make decisions. It's basically just two dimensions. It's how easy or hard is it? So this is hard and this is easy. And how great a reward will we get? and this is not much reward, and this is a lot of reward. And so there's this decision curve that we make. So if something is easy to do, and it's a high reward, we're going to do it. Like, hey, oh, I I get a piece of chocolate if if I clean up my room, great. But if it's really hard to do, if the reward isn't really outsized reward, I'm not going to do it. And if the reward is pretty good, but it's really hard to do, I'm probably not going to do it. And so know how you make those decisions, know the kinds of contexts in which you make hard decisions and you take steps to actually take action and know when you don't. And that's something to be very self-aware. When you see yourself procrastinating and you're kicking things down the road, look at that calculus and say, wait a minute, if it had been a little easier to do or the
0: reward had been a little bit higher, would I have done it? And the answer is usually yes. So understand the brain chemicals and which ones I respond to, and how I can self-administer. And the brain calculus, exactly. Next rules causes me to believe there are more than one rule. Yeah. Any others you want to mention before we move into learning technologies?
1: I'll just hit a couple of quick ones because it's helpful sometimes to frame things. So the what of work is really quite simply problems to solve. And The more we think of ourselves as problem solvers, then the more likely it is that we're gonna be able to build more effective organizations. So my father discovered with Parachute years ago, if you present yourself as a problem solver to a potential hirer, I get your problems, I get your customers' problems, I've solved these problems. Here are examples in my history of when I've done that. That's the what of work. You will be hired much more likely than the next person, right? The where of work, we all know that needs to be flex work, flexible work. <laughs> process, not answers. You need to have a constant set of co-creation with workers in your organization and beyond about where and when and how they work. The who of work, we know that we're going to have to get better at our social skills because we're going to just be dealing with more kinds of people. We've broken the seal. Mm -hmm. We can hire remote and distributed. It's going to be a lot more people. And then finally, the why of work. I show the Guy model of what we get paid for, what we're good at, what we love to do, and what the world needs. And in Ikigai, that's shown as a Venn diagram. I show it as a stack because the old rules of work, you worked your way up the ladder. The old rules were just getting paid for it and hopefully getting good at it to get paid better. And then my father added with Parachute the idea that you could do what you love. And then finally, what the world needs. Maybe you volunteered at the local soup kitchen when you retired. But it's really important to understand that work has shifted so dramatically. The old rules of work, and especially older workers, are kind of following it in that sequence. But young people flip the stack. Coming out of college, high school, I want to do what the world needs. If I can do that, that's going to be what I love. If I love doing it, I'm going to get better and better at it. And if I get better and better at it, I'll eventually get paid well for it. And so what happens with a lot of people who lead in organizations, you are leading people doing two completely different directions on the ladder. CEOs ask me all the time, why are young people, millennials, which is code for young people nowadays, why are they always asking me about the purpose of my organization? It's because they are starting with purpose and working their way down the ladder. And you have got to manage or lead with this cross generational divide. And there's lots of ways to solve that. You can pair them across that divide so that young people learn mastery and diving into things, and older people learn digital technologies and learning what I call just-in-time and just-in-context, and they can spark off of each other. So those are the other five Ws.
0: We talk about the mentoring as co-mentoring, that instead of the old, I'm old and experienced, and you're young and inexperienced, we're differently experienced and we share those insights. By the way, those young people are kind of normally better at changing. Go figure. And frankly, they do have some incredibly important skills that at least in our organization, we count on them because they help us a lot.
1: And increasingly, they will be the source of those skills. They're going to be the ones who are going to lead tomorrow.
0: And we want them to be good because we get to retire someday. And we want the world to be effective.
1: Yes. And they will solve problems that you never encountered.
0: How are exponential technologies transforming work and learning?
1: Certainly the rhetoric, certainly the headlines pre-pandemic were that robots and software were going to take your job unless you were this sort of digital nomad, you were going to be a failure because all of these young people with their digital distraction devices, they had access to the world's information and they were going to be solving problems you were unable to solve. And oh, by the way, artificial intelligence software was going to be underpinning everything you did. So if you didn't figure out how to use those tools, then you might as well put a fork in it and just retire early. So that was the rhetoric for many headlines beforehand. And what I said at the time is, I don't think that's really the issue. I think it's the pace and the scale of change. You know, 15 years ago, if I had told you that you were going to have this piece of technology, that you'd walk out of the house without your wallet or your keys. But if you walked out without this, you would turn the car around and go back. Oh, and by the way, again, 15 years ago, you're going to press a button and a stranger's car is going to pull up and you're going to open the door And you're going to say, Ahmed, and he's going to say, Gary. Didn't your mother tell you not to get in the stranger's car? You're going to get in a stranger's car. You're going to go to point B and get out. And you will never have handed a dollar to Ahmed. And if I told you both of those things, you would say, you are crazy. There's no way any technology that in 15 years, half the people on the planet are going to be carrying around. How am I going to tell my friends I get in a stranger's car to go from point A to point B? Don't you just take a cab? And yet here we are. So this is what happens with exponential change, is it's always this sort of curve where we don't see change at the beginning. One of my favorite quotes for the um, the way to be thinking about change is that we are already living in the future, it's just it's not evenly distributed. And so what ends up happening is, exponential change is happening, but we don't see it. I've got self-driving cars running up and down my neighborhood here in the Fillmore in San Francisco. And yet there are people around the world that have never seen or or been in a self-driving car. So the role that they play in the way that work is changing is typically they are automating a lot of tasks. And so more and more technology is being thrown at taking the work that messy, expensive humans do. And if you sort of think of that as another magic quadrant with how unique the problem to solve is and how unique the skills to solve the problem are. And if it doesn't require unique skills and it's kind of repetitive. That's gonna be automated. And so humans need to move the upper right quadrant. Creative problem solving of new problems. And so exponential technologies can enhance all of that. With Singularity University, we've got this amazing set of brainiacs around the world that are smart on everything from quantum computing to next generation medicine. And I get to pull out of their brains: like, how is that impacting the future of work and the future of learning and the future of the organization? And what it turns out is you can sort of group them into two categories. One is they're basically taking work away from humans, which is you know saving money and making, you know allowing us to be able to get cheap stuff. But then there's enhancing humans and helping us to be able to solve new problems and solving some of the most complex, wicked problems of our time. And that upper right quadrant is where we need to really focus our energies and where we need to develop these technologies to allow us to be able to solve the most challenging problems of tomorrow.
0: Not too many years ago, I read an Adela's book CEO of Microsoft talking about the ethics of AI and robotic process automation and how we need to make sure that people are treated fairly as we automate their jobs. Absolutely. Again, fast forward a few years, and now we can't find people to do these jobs, and everyone's clamoring for robots to do things that we never imagined we would be comfortable with. This is how mass change happens at work systems.
1: You know, I often say the domains of the future of work are, there's four of them, individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. And we've been focusing a lot on the individual and organizations. At the country level, how do you create inclusive economies? And it turns out there are countries like Germany and Switzerland and the Nordics, and they have rules. Their rules of work are, oh, you can't just lay that person off. You've got to train them for the next job, or you've got to pay into a fund so that they have that training and they can be connected to the next work. In the United States, we don't have an employment system. We have an unemployment system. Our system only is optimized around when you don't have work. And it's up to you to be the one to make sure that you don't fall out of work. And so what ends up happening is we hit these times where the work market is out of sync. That is, we were out of sync. In March of twenty twenty we went from about three point nine percent to fifteen percent unemployment in three weeks mm-hmm. and Germany went from five point one percent to five point six percent unemployment. This is systems design i mean this this is you know you can solve these problems, but what ends up happening is as people who lead in organizations, you can solve it for your organization you can be spending really, really substantial amounts of money to keep people trained and learning these new skills to solve the problems of today and tomorrow. You've probably done the calculation in your organization of what turnover costs you. You probably see how hard it is to be able to hire the people that you think are optimized for the roles. Well, if you hire what Byron O'Gee calls stars, skilled through alternative routes, you're going to hire people that don't have the standard degree. I don't have enough college to stuff into a thimble. (laughs) I barely escaped high school. You're not going to hire me if what you're looking for is a four-year degree and 20 years of experience, but you're going to find amazingly skilled people if you instead look for their capacity for problem solving.
0: Even that one statement, our structures aren't yet aligned with how do I identify them?
1: Yeah. Think of it this way. Hiring is a risk management process, just like getting married is. If you knew with absolute certainty the next person to walk in the door was the perfect person for you, you would marry them on the spot. But we don't. (laughs) So it's a risk management process, right? Dating is a risk management process. Hiring is a risk management process. So what we do is we try to dial down risk following the old rules of work. So first off, there probably was somebody in the role before, and let's call him Fred. And we loved Fred, and Fred quit on me. What am I going to do? I'm going to take Fred's job description, which is mostly around tasks. It's not around problems. It's not around skills. It's around tasks, the steps somebody goes through. And I'm going to put some lipstick on it. I'm going to dress it up a little bit. And I'm going to put it out on indeed.com. And I want Fred back because Fred kind of looked like me, and Fred kind of thought like me, and we were a saponico. And anyway, so that's the way I'm going to approach it as a risk management process where I'm trying to dial down risk by essentially making the same requirements that I had before. And then the work market shifts, and there aren't a lot of Freds out there anymore. And am I going to rethink the way that I do things? This is back to our original discussion about changing the way you do things, changing your habits. You have to think differently. And so how can you dial down the risk of getting people to work with you that works for both of you? What's happening is there actually are startups that have popped up where you can basically take your hopefully your work role description, and hopefully you have done that as a team sport. You didn't just write it, but your team wrote the definition of the problems to be solved that nobody else can solve on the team and the skills needed for it. And then you actually take that and you hire contractors. You find a half a dozen people that all meet what you think are the qualifications and you give them a month long project for each and you pay them for it. And then by the end of it, you know where the fit is, like you've seen it and everybody else feels like they you know, were compensated for their time. And so that's just one example of how you can dial down risk without going through this industrial era cattle call process. And then you can do the same thing internally. I often show a picture of an iceberg. We don't know our own skills and we don't know the skills of everybody inside the organization. So make a commitment to that. Make a commitment to everybody in the organization inventorying their own skills. And what you're gonna find is you have skills, you have all this incredible human potential, human capacity below the waterline you didn't even see. They might not have even seen. And then if you put that into an enterprise skills database, And you have enterprise marketplaces where those who lead teams no longer just own people. It's an enterprise resource that you can have all these problems and projects that everybody knows about and all these skills that could be dynamically binding around those problems and tell everybody, yeah, 20, 25% of your time, you actually should be working on projects cross-disciplinary across the organization, because that will build this connected tissue that will help us to all be able to be better aware of the skills inside the organization and have more diverse teams. So I know that was a long rant right there. There's a lot in there, but this is all doable. And I can give you an example of an organization doing every single one of those different activities.
0: We were in an interview this morning, and one of the things that struck me is this idea that because of the job hopper kind of culture that's coming online, that organizations just have more permeable boundaries. And within organizations, what you're talking about is more permeable boundaries.
1: The mindset I encourage is exactly that. I call it the soft walls of the organization. Our old mindset about the organization was that it was a box. You had scarcity inside the box, uh, only a certain number of jobs. How did you manage that scarcity? You had hierarchy. And abundance, as my friend Peter Diamandis from Singularity University would say, abundance outside the box, lots of people that wanted jobs. Oh, no, along came the Great Reset. (laughs) and the great resignation, and suddenly you don't have enough people to be able to hire. So, but think of all the use cases for work. You've got contractors, subcontractors, vendors, you've got gig workers, cloud workers. You've got all these different use cases for work that won't fit in the box. The new model, it's not a workforce, and it's not a network, it's a work net. It's if you just picture a network of people, and at the core, that's traditional employees with standard paychecks, But there's all these different roles of people, back to our original premise, creating value for the organization stakeholders. When the DoorDash guy brings the pizza to your team, when you're working on a thorny problem, he just contributed value. So tip him well, because he just contributed value to your organization. If you stay in the meeting longer because you have the pizza, you might have solved the problem you would never have solved otherwise. And so think of that as a network of humans with untapped potential to be able to create value for your organization stakeholders. And then you look at organizations like Upwork, which has 2000 workers, but only 25% of them are traditional employees. 75% of them are actually Upworkers on their platform, some of whom have worked for the organization for 20 years. These are the use cases for work that your organization must be able to embrace to be able to have those soft walls.
0: And my assumption is that in the next rules of work, this is certainly going to be more common. And you just gave the 25% example with Upwork, that for many organizations, we're going to have more non traditional workers than traditional.
1: Yes, and more than 50% of the people that work for Google are called TVCs, temps, vendors and contractors. The whole idea is yes, and it's critical to commit to what the author Zainab Tan calls. Good work. What ends up happening when you unbundle work, and I talk about this a lot in the book, and especially in the final chapter, which is the world we all want. If you think of a completely gigified economy, you don't want the result because the good news is it's flexible. You can pick up the work anytime you want. You can choose when you want to work and when you don't want to. Oh no, actually you can't because you have no reliability. You can't choose your own shifts, and they can simply stop using you. And it's not a layoff you know and again in other countries they have different rules of work so an increasing percentage will be these alternative use cases for work mentorships apprenticeships and so on you must compensate them fairly you must give them more reliable work you must make them part of the process not the remote person but an integral part of your team as much as you possibly can because otherwise you're creating a new lower worker class that will only increase the precarity of your entire domestic work market.
0: And that's where your work around communities and countries comes in.
1: Exactly. If you think about all the communities in which your organization operates and you authentically show up there and you are part of the process of helping to determine what kind of work is needed there, what kind of training is needed. Google has actually done quite a good job with Grow with Google run by Lisa Gevelber, their US CMO. And they've done actually a really good job of getting a lot of training materials out of there that engaging with communities, not just in the U.S. but beyond, to get these training resources so they can develop the skill set. And it's self-serving for Google. Yeah, we need AI programmers. But it's wonderful for the communities because the community colleges and the land-grant universities can all leverage these resources to be able to develop new programs they don't have the resources to
0: do. Well, and think about the number of people when we started outsourcing, we being largely the US and other developed countries, we sent to less developed countries. Yeah. But the elevation of the standard of living in many of those countries has been unparalleled. So this shifting of work has for many people lifted them out of poverty, lifted children out of sweatshops and such.
1: Here's what's true from the country level. Again, you know, individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. What's true from the country and the region level is humans were actually much better than we would have thought we are at elevating people from poverty into above poverty. We suck at bringing them from above poverty to middle class. We don't do that well in a lot of economies. The U.S. did a really good job of it up to a certain point. But there's a lot of especially developing economies that we have not yet cracked that code because there's this crossover point where we now have so much money in just a few hands that it is a zero sum game. There isn't enough money to go around. And the way that those people have gathered and kept their money means that it's not going to get distributed to help to build that middle class. And so. Even in those better distributed countries that have better work agreements, there's still lots and lots of millionaires and billionaires because our own peculiar forms of capitalism actually accelerate that process. So in my final chapter in the book, The World We All Want, I actually point out, and here's how you fix that. like It is fixable where everybody can win, but it takes a completely different mindset. It takes a mindset of understanding how these systems are designed And that everybody, starting at an individual level, but certainly at the organizational level, can actually be that change. And it goes back to paying people good wages and crafting good work and caring about the whole person. I mean, all things that we know in the post-COVID era we need to do.
0: There's an underlying assumption there, I believe, that the purpose of the corporation isn't just to maximize profit to shareholders, but it's the stakeholder shift.
1: Bingo. So back in uh, the early 2000s, my wife and I, who we've run a company together and we've done numerous projects together, we became obsessed with this whole idea that you could do well and do good. Mm -hmm. And back in the early 2000s, let me tell you, it was not very popular. And then in 2008, we co-founded something called SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, which was basically a conference to bring together all the different stakeholders you can think about. That all cared about that entrepreneurs and nonprofits and for-profits and investors and corporations and governments. And what we want to do is infect the world with the possibility that yes, you can have a range of stakeholders. I call this inclusive capitalism. Some call it stakeholder capitalism. It's really, really critical, as I was saying, for the organization to have a thesis about who its stakeholders are. And I hope that also includes your workers, your suppliers, your partners, the communities in which you operate and the planet. I hope those are all your stakeholders. But inclusive capitalism doesn't just say, hey, we got to care about the stakeholders. It says we need to fine-tune capitalism so that it has the broader benefits that it used to have back in the mid-20th century. It does not have those broader benefits nowadays. It is a different form of capitalism today. And so inclusive capitalism has to have that baseline of stakeholder, focus on stakeholder agreements. But it also has to have a set of mechanisms where we all agree what builds broader benefit and that we commit to those systems at the organization level and at the country level.
0: Because that is, in fact, how we stay healthy.
1: Absolutely. We've gotten very unhealthy because of an awful lot of stories we've told ourselves that are not true. Yeah. We've told ourselves that anybody can succeed. We've told ourselves that we all should be in charge of our own health. Because, hey, I can eat any damn thing I want, and it's going to be okay. You know, that adult-onset diabetes thing, that's never going to touch me. You know, we told ourselves these stories, and they don't turn out to be true.
0: One of the things I talk about is that one of the stakeholders is also our future employees, future generations. If I look through the lens of what is my legacy, and not everyone resonates with that term, but that what I've created will either make the world better or worse in large part.
1: My friend Charlene Lee, who wrote The Disruption Mindset, she's got a great meme around your future customer, and that so much of the value you're continually trying to create is to be thinking about the needs of the future customer. And yes, you must be thinking about your future worker, because what you've done is, no matter what your history is, unless you're doing a brand new startup that has no hit, you're always doing three things. You're honoring the past. That is, there's something that got you here, including the customers and the workers that did that. You're through the lens of the present. It's what value are we creating today for our stakeholders? But you're also trying to optimize for a better future. And what ends up happening too often is in our quarterly reporting mindset, we've let capitalism basically narrow us down into this gully where all we can see. We've got the blinders on. We can only see the next quarter. And we're not thinking about that future worker. We're not thinking about the future of our local ecosystem. Here in San Francisco, we gave a whole bunch of tax benefits to a bunch of tech companies during the 2008 meltdown. We called it the Twitter revolution. And wonderful. Twitter and a bunch of other tech companies are here. Horrible. We've got far worse. Gentrification. And a lot of people that are unhomed on the street, who could have seen that coming? (laughs) The answer is we can do the same thing in our organizations. You can see very likely the kinds of skills and people that you're going to need in the future, and you can actually start to optimize for them now by building processes that will survive your tenure.
0: One last question as we wrap up you talk about leadership being dead mm-hmm. and yet you talked about different languaging for all of us have a responsibility within the organization and there are still people like CEOs who have the fiduciary responsibility of effectively moving the organization forward I want to separate
1: out the context of responsibility and of leading right and so Leading is essentially meant to be a set of decision-making processes and catalytic processes so that problems get solved. And again, if every problem got solved and you never saw them, then I think you should get your annual bonus because (laughs) you did all the right things. But What ends up happening is there are always periods where the responsibility rises because uncertainty rises and precarity rises. So with the onset of the global pandemic and the Great Reset, what ended up happening is there were organizations that were already optimized for this because they had the kinds of mindset, the kind of culture where everybody had responsibility for some facet of the problem to be solved. And companies like Asano, they basically say, you know what? We were running fine in 36 hours. We were a completely distributed organization in 36 hours. But other organizations with older mindsets or more of the command and control structure, basically vacuums were created because of those approaches. And so that is where the responsibility is high and the uncertainty is high I am a fan of always optimizing around vacuums. That is, if there is a problem to be solved, and in this case, it's we have got to become a distributed organization overnight or we die. It turns out that the combination of incentives and disincentives, humans can change in ways they would never have thought possible. I think it was uh, Fauntleroy said, if you're going to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates your mind wonderfully. And so the whole idea is that if you believe either really bad stuff happens if I don't act or really good stuff could happen if I do act, we're back to that thing of how hard is it versus how easy. Oh, it's really hard, but the rewards are we get to keep on living and eating. You're going to do it. And so this is what I think of as what's different is there's always leading in times of challenge, times of uncertainty, which is in the book title. And that just requires a different skill set. And if you have designed your organization, if you have encouraged people, if you've catalyzed others to make decisions, then you're in a great shape and you're going to be prepared for it. But if you have not, the decision still needs to be made. What I look and do is look around when I'm involved in a project and if the floor is dirty and nobody's cleaning the floor, somebody's got to do that. If the next billion dollar product has to be designed and nobody is doing that, somebody's got to do that. That's when you step in. And hopefully you do that in such a way that doesn't disenfranchise others. It teaches them what you do to lead in times of uncertainty.
0: Beautiful. So as we wrap up, one, thank you for a delightful and incredibly informative conversation. How would people find your book, get resources about the book? You work for multiple organizations. How did they learn more from you without calling you? I appreciate that.
1: Okay, so first off, it's on Amazon and I strongly support local bookstores. So please order through your local bookstore if you can. It's also available in digital. Um, and I think it's being translated into three languages. Secondly, my site, gballs.com. I've got links to pretty much everything I mentioned, all the books I mentioned, all the courses I mentioned, and so on. And then please ping me on LinkedIn. I mentioned I've got these nine courses and that's, um, I mean, it's easiest to find there. And that's where we end up meeting some amazing people. Through that platform
0: so i'm going to spell your name just so people hear it oh yes b-o-l-l-e-s so g-b-o-l-l-e-s.com
1: oh thank you Maureen. it's been a wonderful conversation
0: thank you again and to our listeners thank you for staying engaged thank you for what you're doing to move our world forward during a time that's very complex we need you and we need your best efforts